This is the 966, episode 35. Richard, Mumtaz. 35. Another great day at the 966. <laughs> and another great week with the 966. On today's episode, we'll have a terrific conversation with Afshin Malavi from Johns Hopkins SICE. We will, of course, get to that after our one big things this week, and then we'll finish up, as always, with our Yella segment to get you up to speed at the end of the week. Of course, um, as many of you know now, all of these things, all these segments are going out on YouTube individually. If you like to just watch one thing or the other, you can do that there or you can listen to the whole hog as a podcast or on YouTube as well. Thank you for being here with us. Subscribe if you haven't already. Richard, let's get going. What's your one big thing this week? Well, before we get to it, thank you, Lucian, because this takes a, just a tremendous amount of work, not only to capture it, to edit it, and then to break it out into uh, different segments, which is what we wanted to do all along and we're getting our way working our way towards it and I say we you're the one you're the you're the man behind the curtain on this technical side but you're doing you're doing an outstanding job thank you Lucia well thank you you just got to like what you do you know and then you never work a day <laughs> that's in your true life. that's true well you know <laughs> um, my one big thing for foreign policy pluses um, I'm doing uh, political stuff I got to do I got to do more social page you know style page stuff anyway uh, this is important. In the category of positive signs regarding regional policy disputes, this past week was an encouraging one for Saudi Arabia with movement on four fronts, starting alphabetically with Iran. So Kuwait and Saudi Arabia invited Iran to work together to demarcate the Dura offshore gas field, which lies adjacent to Iran's maritime zone. Uh, this is a small thing, but in the larger Iran-Saudi dialogue, which was started in 2021, was put on hold by Iran this past March. But it's, I think it's a, it's a good gesture. It's Kuwait and Saudi Arabia feel that they can, they can work this uh, gas field, not a problem, but they are invited Iran to come in and demarcate the area. So this is a small gesture, but it's a gesture. Next, Lebanon's Prime Minister Najib Mikadi will visit Saudi Arabia during Ramadan, this following the return of Saudi Arabia's ambassador to Lebanon and the recent announcement of Saudi Arabia and France coordinating humanitarian assistance for Lebanon's hard-hit economy. Hezbollah still dominates Lebanese politics, but this is better than where it has been. They're trying to, to have some sort of rapprochement and uh, get Saudi Arabia wants to be involved. There's uh, elections next May. Um, but anyway, this is the communication is better than not, and it's nice to see the prime minister coming to uh, Saudi Arabia. Speaking third, speaking of important people coming to Saudi Arabia during Ramadan, Turkip's Recep Erdogan is expected to visit during Ramadan as well. Continuing to de-escalate this conflict is critical. Turkey has discontinued its Khashoggi trial activities and needs Saudi investment and access to the Saudi market to help bolster the Turkish economy. This will not be a warm and friendly homecoming between Erdogan and MBS, but it just needs to be less antagonistic. So that's progress there. Fourth, and most important, movement on Yemen. First, there was a surprise two-month truce between the Houthis and the Yemen government announced on April 1. Uh, this agreement's broad contours, which is halting the fighting, letting fuel ships into Hodeida, and reopening Sana'a Airport, had been at the heart of UN mediation efforts since early 2020, but had been blocked by both or either side. This truce was also endorsed by the Saudi coalition. Now, understand the distinction between the government of Yemen, the Houthis, and the Saudi coalition. Then, on April 7th, Yemen's interim president of a decade standing, Abed Hadi, and his government was replaced by a presidential council consisting of, of eight men, all men, who represent anti-Houthi factions from both the north and the south of Yemen. 
Although it was positioned as Hadi making this decision, this decision, it is clear the Saudi coalition required it as Hadi has little has had has little to no influence over the anti-Houthi campaign. Immediately after the announcement was made of Hadi ceding control to a presidential council, Saudi Arabia committed two billion and the UAE one billion to help stabilize Yemen's economy. All to the good. Hadi's you know is is dead wood really. Presidential Council, we don't know what's going to bring, but it's a change. Obviously, $3 billion in, in, in uh, inflows to help stabilize Yemen's economy is great. While the truce was a surprise and Hadi's removal widely welcomed, what happens from here is to be determined. UN envoy Hans Grunberg is pressing to make the ceasefire permanent and pushing for the convening of inclusive talks to end the conflicts. Saudi Arabia called on the new Presidential Council to begin no negotiations with the Houthis to reach a, quote, comprehensive political solution, unquote. On the ground in Yemen, this may be an opportune time since the Houthi attempt to capture Maghrib, which they thought would, they would be able to achieve in late 2021, has been stymied in 2022 by UAE-aligned forces. This stalemate may, may contribute to a greater willingness by the Houthis to entertain a political solution. We've talked earlier on, on previous episodes about diplomacy breaking out, starting really with uh, the Alula agreement in early uh, in January 2021 when Qatar was brought back into the fold. But, you know, Turkey is uh, in the region and elsewhere. If if they can find a resolution to Yemen, uh, this would I, it would be groundbreaking. It would transform, I think, Saudi Arabia's um, outlook on the future and, and moving ahead with more important things, which is their, their economic uh, challenges and their economic Vision 2030 goals. So busy week for Saudi foreign policy. Um, one thing that I think is interesting, and you mentioned Turkey, is the um, Turkey just transferred the Khashoggi case to Saudi Arabia. And I'm getting a lot of questions on my end. I'm sure you are too, Richard, as to why that is. And it sort of fits into this sort of new rapprochement you mentioned that's going on between Turkey and Saudi Arabia. Um, just very interesting. It is. It is. It's, you know, Saudi Arabia is dinged, by, particularly by the U.S., for lack of transparency in terms of its, how this, this incident, this murder was handled. Uh, Turkey uh, politicized it. I mean, they used it to, as a cudgel <clears throat> in many ways to, to just try and gain leverage. And this was a time when they were much more antagonistic and confrontational with the Gulf. And I think they've decided it's no longer to their advantage, so they're going to let it drop. Because you know, obviously, a, you know, a trial of, of Saudis um, executed in in um, in Turkey was not going to be going anywhere. Mm -hmm. It was just a, a policy thing that uh, Erdogan thought was useful in his particular tiff with uh, Saudi Arabia and MBS. And he definitely milked it for all it was worth during yeah. the time. Um, and I so, think it's also so, yeah, please. Sorry, yeah. So 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 a lot of people, you know, there's plenty of people in the U.S. that feel like the you know the, the the people who perpetrated the murder of Khashoggi have not been brought to justice. But this wasn't going to happen in Turkey anyway, and it, mm -hmm. it was time to let that let that go um, and move forward, at least in terms of the Saudi-Turkish relationship. Yeah, and the Dura gas field um, story is very interesting as well. Sort of the, the Saudis and and uh, Kuwait. I mean, both of them claim the whole field, but sort of using it as a, a interesting way to invite Iran to discuss, you know, maybe possibly sharing it with with them. I mean, they, they claim it as theirs, but it's a it's an interesting, you know, um, invitation, I guess, to Iran to to sort of get in the mix there. 
Yeah, as I said, it's a small gesture, but it's a gesture. And it's, uh, you know, Iran expressed its uh, annoyance with Saudi Arabia and Kuwait saying, you know, we're going to work this field and this is ours and we can do whatever we want. So uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait have not backed off of that, and I don't expect they will. But, you know, come on over and let's talk. Mm-hmm. That's better than the, than the alternative. Certainly. And this is a bit of a sea change. I mean, if you put all these things together and you think about Saudi Arabia's foreign policy since the rise of King Salman and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, there haven't been a lot of clear victories. There have been some missteps, um, big and small. You mentioned the Qatari blockade, um, you, the Sa- Saudi Arabia's tiff with Canada, the war in Yemen didn't go as they thought it would. Um, just interesting to see things evolve, especially, and we, we're going to talk later here with uh, Afshin Malabi, the way the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has sort of set off a, a ripple across the world, not just in business and commerce, but also in foreign policy and the way countries rethink their position in the world. It's just very interesting. Fascinating. I expect Afshin to give us some real insight on this because it's it's laid bare a number of questions and uh, and issues that have been dormant and, and needed to be brought forward because they're real sticking points for a lot of these countries, Saudi Arabia in particular. Indeed. Well, we'll look for more progress on that. Actually, it's funny because I don't have a Society Pages um, story for my one big thing. It is also related to Yemen. Look at us being all professional, Richard. Look at that. (laughs) My one big thing this week, a new American-led naval task force will patrol the waters off Yemen to hopefully put a sizable dent in the arms of in the arms and other smuggling that goes on in those crucial international waterways, some of which benefits the Houthis in Yemen, and also to help prevent attacks by the Houthis on other ships that traverse those waterways. Here's what we know. The new task force will be part of the Combined Maritime Forces, which is a multinational maritime partnership of 34 countries, led, of course, by the preponderant United States and including Saudi Arabia, France, the UK, and other allies in the region. U.S. 5th Fleet Commander Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, who oversees the Combined Maritime Forces and is not the Hollywood actor, announced the new (laughs) task force in a call with reporters. The new task force is actually the fourth under the CMF command, joining three others. Um, All of them sort of have to deal with counter piracy. And then there's one for the Arabian Gulf and one for outside the Arabian Gulf. The task force would ensure also a force presence and deterrent posture in the Red Sea and critically in the Bab el-Mandab and Gulf of Aden, really critical waterways that uh, David Desroches discussed as as critical. Um, Colonel Brad Gandy was on the program a few weeks ago, also discussed this. Cooper did not mention the Houthis by name, but when asked about the air raids on Yemen on U.S from Yemen on U.S. partners, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Cooper said the task force would impact the Houthis' ability to obtain the weaponry needed for such attacks. He said, quote, we'll be able to do it more vibrantly and more directly than we do today. We're looking at between two and eight ships that will patrol at any time, and that will include the USS Mount Whitney, a Blue Ridge-class amphibious command ship. Um, Richard, this is the latest in a sea change. Is another word I've used twice already in a very short time, um, and pun attended. <laughs> um, evolving situation in Yemen after the Saudi-led coalition worked diligently for an extended ceasefire there. Of course, moving President Hadi aside, as you said, in favor of a governing council. Um, but really, it's the latest in U.S.-Saudi relations, which are kind of picking up a bit. Um, people are sort of saying that they're at a nadir, or even a, a recent nadir. But, you know, in fact, sort of America seems to be responding a little bit to the so-called snub of, of the President Biden uh, phone call. Um, just kind of the latest in American sensitivity to Saudi security needs here. So I thought this was an interesting story. Um, 
Yeah, I think that captures it. I mean, it's, uh, it's on the Saudi side. It felt like uh, the U.S. was a bit tone deaf and, and we're not responding to their real issues. This is one way to uh, indicate and signal that you know, they're still very deeply concerned and involved with and committed to the Gulf security, especially in terms of transit and trade. Uh, it is an issue, uh, so it's, uh, it's a nice extension of that task force uh, responsibilities, combined with things like uh, Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken you know, going to speak with the, the, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed and essentially apologizing for their, their what the Emiratis considered an inappropriate response to missile attacks from the Houthis. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a, uh, I mean, there's a growing sense within the administration. I suppose, I suppose, and we count on this, that there are people, folks, uh, executives, staffers, you know, political appointees who, who are thinking ahead on with regard to how we want to approach Saudi Arabia and the Gulf and, and maybe trying to, uh, uh, imagine better, better approaches and more evolved approaches. Um, but at this juncture, I think we're playing catch up, and it's important to play catch up. If that means going to apologize to MBZ and, and and setting up task forces for security and being responsive in other ways, it's important to do so because uh, the the relationship is critical in so many ways, and it needs to be it needs to be handled. Uh, it can't just be, you know, us. Uh, reprimanding them about human rights or demanding that they pump more oil. It's just got to be more evolved and more comprehensive and, and, and just more imaginative than that because I think this is an important place for us. And, and anyway, so but in the near term, I think right now it's just sort of trying to make up ground. Mm -hmm. And these are things that are helpful in that regard. Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about this with Afshin, but there's there was a, a report this week in The Intercept on sort of 30 lawmakers on the Hill writing a frankly sort of outdated in my opinion and a little bit i mean not a little bit a, a very tone deaf you know note to the biden administration asking for a recalibration of the u.s saudi relationship and it seemed very antiquated and you know while that is going on on the hill you have the on the ground military to military coordination like this new task force that's you know evidence that the relationship is actually getting a little stronger and being a little bit more responsive to dynamics on the ground well it's the nature of uh you know a democratic uh, system and and the people each have factions and they have interests that they voice and, and there are some people who think that should you know we should only look at saudi arabia through the lens of uh human rights or that it should only be determined by, you know, uh, what happened with Jamal Khashoggi. And, and again, we've talked about this in the past, uh, not to diminish what happened with Jamal Khashoggi, not to diminish the fact that there are human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia, but it's a more complex, more evolved relationship than that. And it doesn't take into account what Saudi Arabia is trying to do in across the spectrum in terms of its economy and its society. Um, as, as you said, I, you know, it's it, to, to me, it's a it's a incomplete approach to the relationship, mm -hmm. and uh, we we get in trouble, I think, when we when we base you know an approach simply on one issue, and and that seems to be the case in many for many of these folks. It's a it's a you know it happens to be uh, a strong bit of this in the Democratic Party, so President Biden needs to deal with this on the political side. Mm -hmm. And as with so many things with the U.S., our foreign policy is dictated too often by our domestic policy um, to the detriment, I think, to our global interests in, uh, in many cases, not just Saudi Arabia. But this is the way it is, and it's always always has been and, and probably always will be. Yeah, well said.
What do you think? Let's get to our, our uh, interview and conversation with Afshin Malavi. He's fantastic. Um, and I think our listeners are going to absolutely love this. I'm so excited. He's uh, a great integrator. It brings real insight and, and provides context to big issues. This is going to be awesome. Joining us now on the 966, the great Afshin Malavi from Washington. Afshin's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, SICE. Coincidentally, my handsome colleague's alma mater. Thank you so much for joining us today, Afshin. <laughs> just just for the, those of you who are confused, if you're watching the video, he's referring to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. It's great to be with you, Lucien. Um, I've seen, we were talking beforehand, you're, you're a, a longtime friend and I was told you, telling you how excited I was to have you on because I, I felt for a very long time, you're a tremendous integrator and a, a simplifier of big ideas. And it's not that you simplify them, but you, you, you make it, them accessible and help us understand them. And, and we're in the midst of some big idea moments currently. But before we get there, can we talk a little bit about your work in the emerging market space? Because I say this because you, 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 you publish daily and emerging markets daily to be redundant, which is just excellent. You know, we, we aggregate news and we put it out for our newsletter and, and, and this is a, a regular source of really fine reporting and analysis. So anyway, let, let me get your sense on what you're doing in that space. Sure. Thank you so much, Richard. And it's great to see you. Uh, and, yes. and I concur. He is a handsome colleague. <laughs> <laughs> so let me uh, let me just say that um, when it comes to uh, the emerging world newsletter, um, it's a it's something that I've, I've you know, been thinking about for, you know, 15, 20. No, in fact, I would take it back almost 30 years. I'm dating myself here from my very <laughs> first job out of college working for the Arab News in Saudi Arabia. And, and let me give you this, and, th and I think that's when we first met. So we're, we're talking about, you know, uh, the, the early, mid-1990s. Um, and, and, and back then when I was uh, working for the Arab News as a, you know, just out of college uh, reporter, uh, I covered business. Uh, and and what, what I found so striking about that is if it was Tuesday, it was a South Korea trade delegation. If it was Thursday, it was a group from East Africa. If it was, uh, you know, the following week, I'd be covering a group from of Indian bankers or Pakistani traders. And, and in, in, in a way, um, without really quite processing it at the time, I was witnessing the rise of the new Silk Road, right, uh, in Jeddah and in Riyadh, where I was, right? Then I began traveling more I, I was based in Dubai, uh, working for the Reuters news agency. I, 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 I came back, I did my graduate work at Johns Hopkins Sice as well. Uh, I, I, um, uh, that was then I uh, did some uh, work in Iran uh, for the Washington Post. And everywhere I went, I was seeing uh, this kind of uh, global trade. I was seeing the, the meeting of East Asia and West Asia uh, in so many different and interesting ways. And so I kind of, you know, noted that. And then over the years, I ended up working at the World Bank. I worked for Oxford Analytica, uh, which was a geopolitical risk advisory firm. Uh, and I still kept watching all of this. And then when I returned to Johns Hopkins sites uh, as a fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute here, um, I thought, well, you know, let's launch something um, in this space of kind of what I've been watching. I've been watching the, the rise of the new Silk Road, the, the interconnections of West Asia and East Asia, interconnections of Africa and Asia. Um, and, and I, along with a partner, 
uh, Institute um, in, in uh, uh, Abu Dhabi called the Delma Institute, we created something called the Emerge 85 Lab. And, and we use this 85 term uh, based on the fact that 85% of the world lives in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East, right? So that's not a forecast going out to the year 2030 or 2040, that's today. And I joked with my partner that if we, you know, if we stuck around for a decade or so, we'd have to call it the Emerge 86 Lab or the Emerge 87 because, because the population trends were moving in that direction. So we in the West are not just a demographic minority, we're a demographic minority by far. But if you look at this 85% world, right, there are, there are several uh, big structural drivers uh, that were driving this world. And, and one was rapid urbanization. We're seeing rapid urbanization across Latin America, across Africa, across Asia, across the Middle East. The other one was unprecedented connectivity, both the digital connectivity and the physical connectivity, right? And then the third one was growing middle classes, right? So I, I, I latched onto these as big mega trend drivers, right? Uh, now, we don't know who's going to win the midterm elections in the U.S., um, you know, we couldn't predict who was going to win the 2016 presidential elections or whether, um, you know, uh, Macron will remain as president or Marine Le Pen will, will become president. Those, those things are difficult to predict. But these tectonic trends like urbanization, connectivity, middle classes, those are a pretty good guide for where we're headed in the future. And Richard and Lucian, I know both of you think a lot about where we're headed in the future um, and, and what it all means. And so that's why I've latched on to these ideas uh, as, as a great kind of uh, guidepost to, to see where we're headed uh, in the future. And all of this comes together in the newsletter, uh, Emerging World, uh, which you can see on Substack. If you were just to Google Emerging World, Substack, Malawi, it would come up and, and please subscribe. I will give all of your readers a 50% discount. It's free, but I'll give them a 50% discount. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> sounds, sounds like our subscription base. <laughs> we've, we've cut your costs in half. That's right. Um, well, uh, that's fascinating on a number of things, because I will say this, I'm going to digress, because you, 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 you recall for me when we met and your work with the Arab News and your, your focus on business. And I think as we go through this conversation, we will find that in terms of how you look at globalization, how you look at the quote-unquote decoupling and all these many things, your, your point of departure is always business. And I think it's a really important perspective that sometimes has you ending up at a place different than a lot of other folks. So we'll leave that aside for now. Um, I also want to put in a plug because you, you, you did a really excellent TED Talk on these five disruptors. Um, what's it, is that correct? What's the exact yeah. title of that? No, so people, it, it looked like a TED Talk, but it wasn't a TED Talk. But it's called it's called the Five Disruption Proof Trends Disrupting Our Future, uh, and and I'll and I'll send you guys the link and you can share it uh, if you like. Uh, but but that's the idea, and and you can also if you were to look up Disruption Proof Trends Disrupting Our Future on Google, it, it, the the talk will come up, and also an article will come up for um, uh, credits on the Credit Suisse website where I, where I delivered the talk. Excellent. I highly recommend it to our listeners and our viewers. It's, it's really, and this is when you heard me say earlier that Afshin is a tremendous integrator and, a, and, a, and a grasps big ideas and communicates them clearly. It, this is, this is an, a, an example. All right, so let's talk about the emerging world. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna apply a Western definition, and which may be a mistake, but I mean, it's vast and it's diverse. And I'll, and I'll say this, go IMF, for example, it lists 
as countries that are in the emerging market group. It lists Argentina, Brazil, Chile, China, Colombia, Egypt, Hungary, India, Indonesia, Iran, Malaysia, Mexico, the Philippines, Poland, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Thailand, Turkey, and the UAE. I mean, that's a huge range. I mean, how do you define the emerging world, and, and, and is, it just, is it just an economic, you know, uh, way you look at it is only just an economic focus? Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a good question, Richard, and, and maybe if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go back to the, the invention of the term emerging markets, because yeah. I think that might be interesting for listeners. Uh, um, I was, uh, on my emerging world uh, website, I interviewed Antoine van Achtmael. Antoine van Achtmael uh, is the guy who invented the term emerging markets. Um, uh, and this is, you'll both appreciate this because it was uh, an extraordinary act of branding, right? Um, Antoine van Achtmael uh, was working at the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, where I worked later, uh, of the World Bank. Uh, and and he, had, he had been living in Asia. He had been traveling across Asia for, for many years in the 1970s. And he saw some real opportunities because what he saw was growth. Uh, he saw developing countries that were growing fast and there were real opportunities to invest in these businesses. Uh, and, and so he went uh, and he decided to create a fund um, and he called it the third world equity fund, right? Um, uh, and, and, and so he presented it to some investors uh, and, and, one, and he had all sorts of charts and, and one of the investors Said, I love the idea. I hate the name. Hate the name. Um, right. Um, and so, so then Antoine van Achtmael tells the story about going back that weekend, racking his brain, thinking over and over again what to do, and then and then he just he said it hit him, and he came up with this term emerging markets as opposed to the third world, right? Um, uh, and and then the way he describes it is he went into his uh, boss's office at the International Finance Corporation. Uh, and he said, I've got this idea. Uh, I'd like to call this fund the Emerging Markets Fund. And he said that within 30 seconds, his boss said, yeah, let's do it. Uh, and in a sense, that act of branding made history, right? Because this was no longer, it was no longer the third world, you know, it, uh, it was the emerging markets, right? Now, having said that, it still took a while uh, to develop this fund. It still took a while, you know, to grow uh, um, and this idea. Uh, to investors, but I think that was vital. Um, and and broadly speaking, if you were to take it early on, you could take all the countries that were considered developing countries. They were kind of piled into this emerging markets, right? Um, now, if you were to look at the MSCI index, MSCI index has uh, certain countries that make their emerging markets index. Uh, countries that um, and then and if you don't make their emerging markets index, you might make their frontier market index, which is a little bit of a riskier uh, investment. They haven't quite made the emerging market status for a variety of reasons, uh, liquidity in their uh, um, equity markets, uh, rules and regulations in their equity markets, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it's a big deal to be to graduate to that MSCI Emerging Markets Index uh, uh, because uh, suddenly what happens is big asset management firms, uh, big institutional investors will set aside a certain percentage of their funds for emerging markets, and they're often investing in indexes, right? So passive funds end up just flowing, uh, which is why when you know um, a country like Saudi Arabia makes the emerging markets index, it, it suddenly passive funds begin flowing, right? So I think it's, it, it, that's important. Now, um, 
broadly speaking, the way I look at it is uh, um, I, I don't get too caught up in whether you want to call these emerging markets. For a while, there was a, a movement to call them growth markets as opposed to emerging markets. And, and others have said, wait a minute, China is the second largest economy in the world. How can we still call it, you know, an emerging market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, but but if you were to if, if you if you are an investor in these markets, you still need to do the kind of due diligence that you would do in your, if you're investing anywhere. You don't necessarily be you don't necessarily want to invest in indexes. Um, yeah, you, you want to look at, at at sectors that you're interested in, countries that you're interested in, ultimately companies that you're interested in. And when you do that kind of due diligence, you're going to see a lot of companies. A lot of very interesting companies uh, in financial services, um, in the e-commerce space, in the traditional space of you know um, bank banking and mining and other other uh, companies, and you're going to see a lot of opportunities there. It's uh, it's a fascinating process. It's really interesting how it's become. When you talk about a benchmark, it's it's become an administrative thing now. It's been yeah. administrative. In Saudi Arabia, we've had we've had uh, done episodes on this and segments where we talk about the. The collapse of the Saudi stock market in 2006. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, because the, you know, the, the oversight uh, mechanism was, was poorly administered, it was a bit of the Wild West, and, and that um, Tadawa was actually introduced in 07 in order to specifically, and I think in their mind, they, they had been included in the MSCI mm -hmm. as their goal. And so from that 07 to 08, 18, period when they were included in the MSCI and then they have those inflows from the indexes, you know, it was a very determined and specific process where they were going to meet each of these benchmarks in order to be eligible. It's an important thing for countries yeah. uh, to be involved in there. So so let's talk about, and I want to get, we're going to get to the other thing, let's talk about Saudi Arabia as an emerging market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's say it was officially an emerging market as of 2018. It's a significantly different situation now. I mean, the, the, that that's the equity markets, the stock market has only grown, only become more fluid, only become more accessible. Yeah. I, I, in our, in my opinion, it's been a terrific uh, success story for Saudi Arabia in sort of graduating into the emerging market world. Um, but let's do something here. We're gonna we're gonna spin on a dime here because something big happened in the world recently. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read you a quote, and 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 I, I, and this is this doesn't necessarily have to be where we're going, but it's a framework. Um, let's and, and and by the way, if you wanna if you wanna push this aside and go where you wanna go, I'm good with that. So, so on February 24th, Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz said Russia's invasion of Ukraine had brought Germany to an historical turning point, a Zeitenwende. There you go, Lucian. Uh, well done. The issue, Joel said, we, we, we are constantly dealing with, with difficult words on this show. Uh, the issue, Joel said, was whether power is allowed to prevail over the law, whether we permit Putin to turn back the clock to the 19th century and the age of the great powers, or whether we have it in us to keep warmongers in check. Now, this certainly feels true for Germany, Western Europe, and NATO. It also seems to be a Zeitenwende for much of the rest of the globe, in particular any number of emerging market countries who interpret the invasion of Ukraine and the West response quite differently than Olaf Scholz. Um, it's a big, big question. Can you speak to this dichotomy and, and, and where we are in terms of this globally 
cataclysmic event? Yeah, I think I think you you raise a really good point because it how this event is viewed in in um, Delhi and and Riyadh and and Beijing and Abu Dhabi is certainly different than how it's viewed in Europe and the United States. And so um, I want to I'll put a, a pin on that for a moment. But uh, what I want to say is that is that this event will be felt in Beijing and Abu Dhabi and Riyadh and you know and and, and all over the world. And so this is. Um, I, I wrote a piece on, on the Emerging World site. I called it Putin's Bomb and the Global Shrapnel, right? Excellent so, piece. Again, further thanks. recommend it. Really good piece. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so, and so Putin's bomb was obviously the invasion of, of Ukraine, um, and, and the, the impact was felt in Ukraine, uh, the humanitarian crisis, the, uh, the, 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 what is increasingly looking like uh, war crimes, and all of that, you know, is happening, and it's happening before our eyes, right? So that's the bomb. Um, but then there is the shrapnel from the bomb. The, the shrapnel, and, and this shrapnel is spreading far and wide. And it's hitting everywhere, every corner of the globe. And very few places are going to be, uh, um, uh, very few places are going to be untouched by this shrapnel. And the reason is because Russia's, you know, Putin's bomb exacerbated a, an already uh, inflationary environment that we were living in. Um, and and contributed and and in a sense you know put the accelerator on this environment and 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 particularly dangerous is what we're seeing with food prices right so Russia and Ukraine as you both know are major wheat exporters but they're also major uh, fertilizer exporters mm -hmm. major you know sunflower oil exporters a lot of a lot of things in the food security world um, were highly dependent on Russia and Ukraine. Uh, some countries more dependent than others. Egypt more dependent, Somalia, Benin, you know, several countries in Sub-Saharan Africa highly dependent on Russia and Ukraine. But even if you weren't highly dependent on Russia and Ukraine, um, the, the price of wheat going up, the price of fertilizers going up. By the way, natural gas prices also push up the price of fertilizer, right? Uh, and, and so this is all contributing to this inflationary environment that we're living in. Now, uh, the inflationary environment that we're living in in the United States certainly hurts. Um, it bites, um, uh, but it, it, but it's it's not all it's not life and death inflationary environment that we're seeing in places like Sudan. We're seeing in places in Sub-Saharan Africa. We're seeing in places in 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 parts of the Middle East as well, uh, where where in Sudan they're looking at 250 percent inflation. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations has said that we're hitting record food prices, right? Now, let's go back a decade and remember the Arab uprisings. You know, I don't call them the Arab Spring anymore. It certainly doesn't feel like spring in Damascus or, or uh, in Libya or other, or even Tunisia. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, but remember that there was spikes in food prices um, uh, right before the Arab uprising, right? Uh, and so now we're seeing that again. And where are we in, in much of the Middle East and North Africa region outside the GCC? Well, we're still at high levels of unemployment, roughly the same levels of un youth unemployment, about 30% youth unemployment, high levels of underemployment. Um, and, and, and yet we're still living in that environment of those three structural drivers that I talked about, rapid urbanization, unprecedented connectivity, growing middle classes, uh, now, when you have rapid urbanization, growing middle classes, unprecedented connectivity, you also have something that's a little bit harder to quantify, but it's 
aspiration, right? So I think one of the biggest stories and one that is worth uh, following um, uh, uh, is, is the rise of aspiration in the emerging world. Uh, it is now become entirely common for the son or daughter of a Kenyan farmer or an Egyptian taxi driver to expect a better life, right? Because they, they, they've seen it. They, you know, they, they've gone off to pharmacy school or they've migrated to, uh, to the Gulf and they've gotten a job and they've made a little bit of money. Um, so, so this aspiration has been unleashed all across the emerging world. Now, what happens when those aspirations are unmet, uh, particularly in an environment where you see how the other half lives, in an environment where, I mean, we, inequality is not new in our world. It's just what is new in our world is seeing how the other half lives through social media and through other you know, means. Uh, uh, and so, so I, I think we're actually in a very dangerous environment as a result of Putin bomb and the global shrapnel, uh, a, a dangerous environment of rising food prices, rising inflation at a, at a, a very at an inflationary moment coming off the back of a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, for, for the first time in 25 years, uh, we saw poverty levels rise across the world. Right. We were on a streak every year. Poverty numbers were falling all across the world. The COVID-19 pandemic hits. Uh, and, and for the first time, according to the World Bank, poverty levels rise anywhere from 80 to 120 million people have fallen back into extreme poverty. Right. So so it's it's as if the, we were we someone on Twitter um, said uh, said, uh, I really enjoyed the, those five minutes uh, between the end of the pandemic and the start of World War Three. Right? <laughs> um, but it's been a one two punch. And I really worry uh, about where we're headed. Well, I think that's really uh, insightful comment you made. Those those discrepancies, those inequities have always existed. We just see more of it, um, which leads me to uh, I don't want to focus on the perceptions, but yes. if you're looking at it from that perspective, yeah. if you're in an emerging market and you're you're and and 100 percent, the most dangerous time in any kind of economic progress is when expectations are high and they're not met with reality. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is a very very sensitive time, but those people, uh, someone in that situation is less likely to be concerned with what Russia did than what the West has done. Is that correct? Yeah. Though you mean the, so the people who are experiencing this are going to be less concerned with what Russia did than what uh, because what the, the reality is is these yeah. uh, these uh, sanctions and restrictions on 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 and Russia and Ukraine's ability right. to export wheat or 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 fertilizer or any number of of yeah. commodities that they are you know lead the world in. Yeah, um, is that an accurate? I think so. I mean, I think at, at the at the no, I think it's accurate. I think at the end of the day, what what people are going to be concerned with and, and what they are often concerned with is these pocketbook issues of, you know, uh, the gas price and food price and, you know, the price of sunflower oil. And uh, um, and, and and by the way, the um, what we're also seeing is increased pricing in all of the metals, the, mm -hmm. the metals that are going to drive our renewable energy future. Right. Yes. Uh, are also increasing in prices. So it's pl playing itself out in so many different ways. And I think this is just a, uh, you and I were talking, Richard, before uh, we began recording, and you, you made a good point about how the Russia-Ukraine invasion kind of exposed a lot of our um, fragilities, you know? Um, and, and, it, and it did, but it also, it exposed how interconnected we are, how globalized we really are, right? And we, I mean, you just take um, your morning coffee, right? Your morning coffee 
um, comes from, you know, a dozen or so different countries, the coffee bean itself, right? Um, and then traders and shippers and roasters uh, are, are, uh, um, uh, are, are sending this coffee around the world. Uh, and it's, and it eventually it ends up in your cup. Um, but it's kind of, it's globalization in a mug, right? Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, I mean, it's, and you, take your, you take your vaccine, your vaccine that you've taken, right? Uh, um, when I looked at the vaccine, um, I wrote a piece called Globalization in a Needle uh, because it was sourced from dozens of countries, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, we, you had um, uh, uh, something like, you know, you had scientists from all over the world that were collaborating. Uh, the son and daughter of Turkish migrants in Germany played a prominent role in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Uh, and all of that came together. And by the way, the plastic um, that, uh, that is used to, you know, uh, to hold the vaccine and put it into your arms would not be available without petroleum and fossil right. fuels. So that's another whole story of globalization. So in a sense, it's, it's globalization in the needle. So so what this what Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exposed to us is is how interconnected we are. How how, how it's kind of like when you um, uh, uh, if you if you break through a wall and then you see all these wires that you didn't know existed, right? Yeah. There's all this wiring <laughs> behind the curtain. Yeah, Don't yeah. Look behind all, the curtain. Exactly. Yeah. There's all this wiring in our global economy uh, that we maybe maybe didn't even know existed. I mean, uh, I mean, frankly, I didn't know about palladium before you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But palladium <laughs> is vital to take the toxic emissions out of cars. You know. Um, met, you know, other metals, you see how important they are to the global economy. And, and, and so Russia and Ukraine together are about two to three percent of the global economy. So not, not all that significant in terms of GDP, but significant in terms of the, uh, uh, the some of the commodities that they send to the world, but also significant in, in the sense that this, this bomb blew up some of these already fragile supply chains. Uh, and, 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 that, and that's why I think that the pain is going to be felt more so in the developing world and in the emerging world than in the advanced economies, which have cushioned their populations with fiscal stimulus, and they've cushioned their populations. And now that we're on on the verge of a you know a uh, a round of Federal Reserve hikes that will could potentially contain inflation. But obviously, the balance is you hike to contain the inflation, but not to tip the economy over into a recession. And yeah, apropos of that, you have a strategic petroleum reserve on which you can draw, you know, a, a million barrels a day for 180 days. So I right. mean, this is something that can be done now. Um, I, let's talk about globalization. Yeah. And I want, and I'm gonna, I'll, I'll throw in another quote from from uh, an interesting article by David Brooks in the in New York Times. You may have yeah. seen it. The globalization yeah. is over. He notes, uh, he, he refers to the Economist reports that between 2008 and 2019, world trade relative to global GDP fell by about five percentage points. There has been a slew of new tariffs and other barriers to trade. Immigration flows have, have slowed. Global flows of long-term investment fell by half. You, you, you see, and, and then he ends, you see the, the, the direction he's headed. And all manner of anti-globalization movements have arisen. Those are the Brexiteers, xenophobic nationalists, Trumpian populists, the anti-globalist left. You actually take a different view of where global, globalization is headed. And it's the health of its health. Right. And, yeah, I do, and, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up um, because uh, because I think that we are. Um, let me put it to you this way: uh, Mark Twain, the great American novelist, uh, he he uh, one day he opened the newspaper, 
and he read his own obituary. Um, uh, and uh, and he, he wrote to the editor of that newspaper, uh, and he said, the news of my demise has been greatly exaggerated, right? Um, and I think this, it's similar for globalization. The news of globalization's demise has been greatly exaggerated. And let me explain, give you some reasons why I think that. We're still living in a world of roughly $23 trillion of world trade, right? Um, and, and if you add services trade, we're looking at about $28 trillion of world trade. Now, um, if, it, if, it, if it grows 2% versus 4%, it's still 23 trillion plus 2% or 23 trillion plus 4%, right? Uh, Richard, you're tall, right? I mean, you're a tall guy, you know? Um, you're, and so, so what are you, 6'6 six, six or 6'5? Six, exactly, 6'6. Six, six. Okay, 6'6. Six, six. So if you were to grow, you know, let's just say you're still growing. If you were to grow, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm going backwards. But yes, let's say that, Afshin. Okay. Along with that, I'm good at handsome. So we're going with this. <laughs> All right, let's say you lose half an inch, right? You're still six, five and a half. So you're still you're still tall, right? So so globalization, even even if the, the trade numbers are by the way, we're talking about growth, we're not talking about shrinking trade. Right. We're saying that, that David Brooks said it, it's growing less fast, right? Um, but so you still have twenty three trillion trillion dollars worth of trade. But if we define globalization as the increasing cross border interconnection of goods, uh, capital, uh, uh, people. Uh, services and ideas, right? If you take each one of those, goods trade is still is still robust, right? We're still, as I said, at twenty-three trillion dollars of world trade. Services trade about five trillion dollars of services trade, right? Again, if it slows two percent, we're still talking about a lot of services trade. And how do you even how do you even capture, you know, um, Slovakian programmers working with Japanese companies? Uh, producing the latest video games. How do you even, you know, put that in, you know, into this into this matrix, right? People. Um, before COVID, in the BC world, we had about 1.1 billion passenger flights in, on international flights, right? Before COVID, uh, according to you know uh, forecasts, we're, we're likely to get back there by 2024 or so, right? Back to the 1.1 billion, and then and then you know we'll, it'll keep it'll keep growing, uh, um, and. Nothing is linear. Can never say anything is going to keep growing entirely. But but if we get back there, that's a lot of international flights. Uh, capital flows. Uh, uh, you know, here's where we could see um, you know some you know institutional investors um, decide to to look at their portfolio and and maybe say, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't be investing so much in China. Maybe we shouldn't be investing so much in. It. But there's still such a lot of passive flows um, that. You are mandated to put a certain amount, certainly among the big U.S. institutional investors. There's a lot of passive flows that go international, that go to emerging markets, that go to Europe, right? Um, so when you look at all of this, I think what ha what is happening is some of the commentators who are saying globalization is dying, they're off, they're operating on a different definition of globalization, and that definition is that um, all of this is happening, which is going to converge to uh, it's going to converge all of us together. Right and, and around kind of the rules-based Western international order, so this gets back to your question that I pinned about um, you know how people are reacting to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. China likes globalization; they don't like the rules-based international order that was made, you know, in, in, in that they think was made in the Western world, right? Um, but for China, globalization is very important for them. Uh, they wouldn't be the economic power they are without it, right? 
Um, and, and several countries around the world, uh, you can say the same thing, uh, that they, they like the globalization that I'm talking about, which is the cross-border uh, connect, uh, connection of goods and people and services and, and ideas, maybe not so much the ideas, but, the, uh, but all of the rest. Uh, and, and, but they don't uh, believe that the rules-based international order, the language that we use in the West, is relevant to them. Because for them, they have been uh, on the, uh, for se several countries in the region, uh, across the world, they have been, they have not benefited, they think, from the rules-based international order, right? Um, uh, and so that's why the, the reaction has been different. And the other thing about the reaction of Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, um, is that, uh, you know, in Washington, uh, from what I'm under, from my understanding, there have been some very serious conversations with our Middle East allies about saying, you know, guys, you need to see this as kind of like a, a, a hinge moment, a new world order moment, a 9-11 moment, right? And, and our Middle East allies are saying, we just, we don't see it that way, you know? Um, and we just don't see it that way. And, and how can you call this a 9-11 moment or a you know, new world order moment when, um, uh, when it wasn't an attack on you? Uh, and, and so, so there is this, there's uncomfortable conversations happening between our allies in the region, uh, and, uh, and here in, in Washington. Um, and, and look, I mean, um, I think India is, is still a major buyer of Russian oil. They're taking advantage of the discounts that Russia is providing on Ural's crude. Um, and they're buying a lot of, uh, Russian oil and they're, they're kind of, you know, getting away with it, uh, because India is so important to our Indo-Pacific strategy. So I'll just... I'll just uh, leave it at that. So I, I guess one, if I could follow up to that, um, yeah. I think one of the fears maybe, and you, you and this, again, this column is just so brilliantly written, but the, the way you put it is Putin's Russia is on the receiving end of a 21st century form of shock and awe from Western right. powers and their allies, a concerted attempt to deglobalize a country to cut it off from the fruits of globalization. Right. So maybe globalization, as you guys said, the sort of wires have been exposed. We see how globalized we really are. But what would you say to maybe a country like Saudi Arabia or, I mean, even China that fears being deglobalized, like being globally canceled by the Western powers and their allies? Yeah, yeah, that's I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Lucien, because because uh, in, in a way, um, if those those people who are saying globalization is dying, think about how globalization is being used as a weapon against Russia. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because what the world is saying to Russia is, is OK, Russia. You can invade Ukraine and, and we'll provide them with some military assistance and we're, we're not going to send our own troops on the ground and we're not going to, you know, um, we don't want to fight you, you know, kinetically in a war. But what we are going to do is we're going to deglobalize you uh, uh, or, or at least make moves to deglobalize you. Uh, we are going to demand, if they don't do it themselves, uh, companies with HQs in our countries to retreat from your country. We are going to uh, try to wean ourselves off of your oil and natural gas. It's harder for Europe than it is for the United States. Um, we are going to block your assets. Uh, uh, you know, Russia had you know uh, uh, billions in in, uh, in in dollar reserves that are that are blocked now, um, and, and we're going to cut you off of the dollar. We're going to so in a sense, the the Western powers that did create the rules-based international order um, do have enormous power. Uh, of of to deglobalize a country that that is doing things that they don't like. Exhibit B is Iran, right? So Iran went through this. So Putin can call the supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, and say, "Hey, 
You know, uh, we're kind of, you know, in the same boat here. The, the, the sanctions on Russia have been stunning. In fact, there's more. There, there was one stat I read that the, there's even more sanctions on Russia than there are in Iran now. Um, uh, and, and, and but Iran has gone through this as well, where where what happens is you, you, you have to kind of uh, work around the system. So Iran still sells its oil, um, but um, but it, you know, it can't get paid in dollars. Uh, and then and then countries around the world take advantage of you. Um, uh, so, for example, for, for many years, Iran was selling to China and India and South Korea and Japan. And, and all those countries were telling Iran, OK, fine, set up escrow accounts in our banks. And, and Iran had billions in renminbi in Chinese bank, billions in rupees in Indian banks. And I remember one Iranian uh, Chamber of Commerce official, he kind of jokingly said, OK, fine, with all these renminbi, we can buy industrial machinery from China. It'll be overpriced. It won't be great, but we'll buy it. But we have billions in rupee accounts in India. How much basmati rice can we buy? You know, <laughs> uh, and then you have to do things like figure out how to, you know, um, uh, 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 do, you know, buy gold and sell gold and do all sorts of things. Your, your ships get sent out to sea without adequate insurance. Um, and, and so 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 we so globalization has been actually used as a weapon. Um, so if you are President Xi Jinping and you're looking at this, uh, and you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, okay, um, if I move on Taiwan, is this what's going to happen to me? Uh, and, and, and if they do this to me, it's going to be more painful to them than it is doing it to Russia, but it will still be painful to me as well, right? Mm -hmm. It'll be painful all around. I mean, I mean, you try to deglobalize China, it's, it's, it's an order of magnitude uh, uh, more important in the global economy than Russia is, right? Um, but but I think it, it, it should give Xi Jinping pause. Mm -hmm. It should give any country pause uh, that if you can you run afoul of quote, Washington and the Western powers, you could be on the receiving end of this deglobalization. Uh, Iran has been on the receiving end of it. Uh, um, Russia is now on the receiving end of it. And I think Xi Jinping probably is taking note here. And it's 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 devastating. I mean, in, in in the prior to the invasion of taking annexing Crimea, I believe the Russian GDP was 2.1 trillion. After the um, sanctions resulting from that invasion, yeah. the annexation, uh, they still hadn't. By 2019, it was 1.6 trillion. They still hadn't yeah. recovered. There's yeah. estimates that this, you know, bout with with financial sanctions will put them back 15 years. Yeah. And this is this is you know again this is a GDP Russia you know equivalent to Brazil it's not that it's not that big and essentially it's you know it, it has it has oil commodities and weapons you know yeah. this is what it it, it has um, but let's let's talk about the, if we can let's let's bring it back down to the Gulf and Saudi Arabia yeah. and UAE but yeah. and and what they're seeing here because because this is. This concern about what's happened and this reluctance to ascribe the same importance, you know, to this cataclysm as the the West and the U.S. has, overlays other grievances, mm -hmm. and it also comes at a time where I, I think let's talk about Saudi Arabia alone. It, I, I, it as is as as confident as I can ever recall it being, mm -hmm. you know, this the the introduction of Vision 2030 in 2016 was as a result of you know two years of, of plunging revenues. Uh, a decision essentially that this revenue model won't work and if we want to take care of our population going forward. It's come through some hard times. 
pandemic, you know, uh, Khashoggi, Yemen, uh, you know, on the business side, introduction of VAT, some very hard uh, uh, structural, you know, changes that have been, you know, have been in, put in, in in order to advance the economy. They're coming out on the other side, having handled the pandemic well, in a global commodity super cycle. Um, really, I think they feel very confident. And I think they're looking at the U.S. just as the U.A. and saying, look, you need to reassess your whole approach to us. And is this correct? I think so. I think, you're, I think you, you framed it really well. And, you know, and, and, and you can overlay that with this sense that, that um, Washington is retreating from the region, right? I mean, you hear this a lot when you talk to officials in the GCC states uh, um, and, and perceived, whether it's, whether it's real or not perception that Washington is either actively retreating from the region or interested down the road in retreating from the region or less interested in the region, et cetera, et cetera right? Uh, and, 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 you know, you can even just go back to 2019 and the attack on the Abqaiq refinery in, in Saudi Arabia and, and the response from Washington, which, by the way, was in the Trump administration's time. It wasn't in the Biden administration. It was in, and, and, and Trump's exact quote, was well that was an attack on Saudi Arabia not an attack on us right um, uh, and and I think that there is this sense that there is this retreat from the region um, uh, there is a sense that uh, uh, we, you know before Russia's invasion of Ukraine just about every country in the world was moving in this direction of decarbonization right uh, or at least this attempt at decarbonization I've I've uh, I've written about how petroleum is still going to be relevant to us for the next 20 30 40 years and we are uh, um, still living in a world where 83% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels and 60% of the world's electricity comes from fossil fuels. So, so, so we can have an aspirational goal of, of uh, decarbonization, um, you know, net zero emissions, uh, but, but we're still living in this world. And, and I think what Saudi Arabia and maybe the UAE are, are, are saying is that yet when you live in the real physical world of, uh, of that they're living in, the world in which Houthi missiles are coming in and landing on their territory, um, uh, and 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 they're saying, wait a minute, you know, we're not getting support from um, the United States. Uh, um, uh, not only that, the uh, you know, the the Biden administration has made it very clear that they were not interested in engaging with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so, for, for, from their perspective, it is, uh, you know, well, wait a minute. Um, we, we've been an ally for many years. We've had differences. We will continue to have differences, but ultimately, you know, we are, um, you know, partners. I mean, I, maybe we don't use the, the technical term ally, but we've been partners, you know, for many years on many levels. And and we don't feel that, that you know, uh, we have that same uh, atmosphere from you now. And then um, oil prices rise. Uh, and 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 the, the, the perception is okay. You need us now, and then you come to us now. You know, and so so I think that there is there is. I think we really do need to seriously think about this relationship um, uh, with the United States and Saudi Arabia, um, and and understand it for what it is, and not try to overlay it with with what it isn't. You know, um, and it's a relationship uh, that has been a strategic. Um, uh, partnership on many levels. There's there's a lot of intelligence sharing that goes on on many levels. There's a lot of things that, uh, uh, but it's not a relationship of necessarily of shared values. 
Um, and and it's not then and that's not something that we should try to you know impose on this relationship, right? Uh, uh, and uh, and it's not a relationship that is ever going to be as close as say the U.S. U.K. relationship. And uh, for example, and it's not something that we should necessarily try to aim for uh, um, in this relationship. But I think this is where we this is where where we are in this relationship. And I think you framed it really well. Uh, two thoughts, and 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 that shared values is important. And in Freedom House, they do a Freedom in the World every annual one. And in 2022, yeah. the heading is the global expansion of authoritarian rule. And it essentially, it says, as of today, some 38% of global, global population live in not free countries, the highest proportion since 1977. 1997, apologies. Only about 20% now live in free countries. So my point being is exactly what you say. There, there's, pl there's plenty, there's a significant percentage of the population who has decided, does not feel a liberal democracy is their best choice. And, and we can characterize it however we want, but, but you, you refer to, the, to 20, 000, 2011 and the Arab uprising. And, the, and for me, always the message out of that was not the type of regime in place, it's the quality of governance. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you see in places like Saudi Arabia or UAE, which are authoritarian states, they have plenty of, 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 of aspects to it that are unsavory to the US and the West. But they're governing well. I mean, inarguably, they're governing well, and um, and and they are trying to meet the mandate that they've set out with regard to their population and their people. So, so it's it's very you know I think you, you, your point is excellent. Having to set aside the values you know that we share, that's not necessarily shouldn't be the guiding principle. And I, I the second part of that is when you talk. I know you you pay a lot of attention to environmental issues, and there's a bit of Schadenfreude right now in Saudi Arabia and, and, uh, and the UAE, you know, when they essentially were, were, were pushed, pushed back and resisted at the COP COP26 in Glasgow, when they're saying, look, you can talk about emissions, I, that's fine, we understand that, but look, we also need to talk about decarbonization. And we have, we have plans in terms of circular carbon economies. We have methods that we think are positive and should be able to contribute, and they didn't feel that they were well received. Now. You know, uh, just a short time later, they're they're being asked to pump more oil, yeah. and uh, I think it's interesting. I'd be interested in your your thoughts on yeah. this because the COP twenty seven, COP twenty seven is going to be in Egypt. COP twenty eight is in uh, the Emirates, Abu Dhabi, yeah. so they're going to be local, and there's going to be an opportunity to progress this conversation because I don't think, and I think you I think you see it the same way. There's no discussion about climate change. There's no discussion about needing to respond uh, significantly and with, with determination to this issue anymore. The discussion is, what's the pace of transition and how are we going to do it? Is, is this something you agree with? Yeah, I, I think so. And, that, and that's what the key word, uh, Richard, is transition in the energy transition, right? And, and so I think we all, we all generally agree that that you know we should be moving in the direction of more and more renewable energies, but we also have to live in the real world today, where you know your uh, your most um, uh, wind turbines, for example, wouldn't really survive without subsidies or support, right? You know, from the European Union, for example, solar uh, energy has come down in cost significantly, right? And and my view is leave it to the private sector to innovate. Uh, because the private sector is going to innovate on renewable energy 
and 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 I'm, I'm and I'm okay with government support for that too as well. You know, you, you, you know, sure. and, and and they're going to innovate, and their government is going to support, and there's going to be breakthroughs that we we can't even imagine. You know, ten years from now, fifteen years from now, twenty years from now, but we're still going to be using fossil fuels for a lot of things. Uh, and even if we were to go to an all electric vehicle fleet tomorrow, which we won't, but if we were we'd still use, we need fossil fuels for jet fuel. We're not about to go to an all electric airplane fleet, petrochemicals, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, look around this room, this room that I'm in right now, it's full of petrochemicals, right? That's, I don't think that's real hardwood, you know, behind me, you know, <laughs> uh, the blinds are full of petrochemicals, you know, um, you know, this, 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 you know, everything in here is full of petrochemicals, right? The, and so the, the product on Lucian's hair, that's it. There you go. Yeah, that's right. Although this morning, <laughs> it's just pure <laughs> crude oil, sour crude. <laughs> crude oil, <right. laughs> so, so we're li still living in a world where petrochemicals are going to be, you know, vital. Um, uh, and 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 going back to uh, the the developing world and the emerging world, you know, one of the arguments that they make is, hey guys, you in in, in the Western world, you had your um, advances, mm -hmm. you, know, you, you grew your middle classes, you grew your economies. Now you have these opportunities to grow your renewable energy base, but we don't have those same opportunities. And we have middle classes that are growing and aspiring and connecting and producing and consuming uh, and, 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 and asking us to go um, move away from fossil fuels is asking us to put the brakes on in our economies at precisely the wrong time uh, because we have young populations that need jobs uh, yeah. and we need to keep growing these economies. So. So the key is the energy transition here, um, yeah. and it's going to take time. And by the way, I think that's going to be one of the big issues in, in COP27 in Egypt and again later, because uh, the emerging world uh, was, was one of their greatest disappointments coming out of COP26 was the unwillingness of the advanced economies to put in more money to mm -hmm. offset the cost yeah. of lowering emissions and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I can only think that would be a, pr a leading issue in Egypt. Uh, in November. Um, so uh, this is absolutely fascinating. And we could go on forever, Afshin. Let's, let's, since this is the 966, yeah. let's talk about U.S.-Saudi relationship. Yeah. Uh, is it over? Is it having I mean, a difficult phase? Is it, uh, is it maturing? And, and I think there's a, there's, it, you can look at it in a positive way. It, you know, it's sort of like going to counseling. You know, you're saying things you never said before but needed to be said. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what's your sense? Yeah, no, I, I think I think it is a um, we're in a um, in a difficult phase. Uh, I think that, and I think that's a good way to put it. You know, things are being said that you know maybe needed to be said uh, now, and and they're they're out in the open. Um, you know, having said that, uh, I think that uh, uh, you know in some respects the the view of Saudi Arabia in political circles in, in, in Washington and, and even in some, you know, academic circles, it has not kept up with the changes that are taking place in Saudi Arabia. And I think that's, that's important. I mean, you look at this young generation of Saudis, um, you know, back in 2007 or I think it was eight, I actually wrote a piece in Smithsonian magazine on, uh, and it was called the young and the restless. And it was about the young generation in Saudi Arabia. I went and I spent some time with, you know, young people in Saudi Arabia and wrote this piece. And, and when I look at this younger generation in Saudi Arabia, we have literally have had more than 100,000 Saudis um, study in the United States and elsewhere. 
uh, on these King Abdullah scholarships, you know, and then several hundred other thousands studied, you know, over the past decade or so elsewhere uh, around the world. And, and what's interesting is how many of them end up going back to Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, it's, it's a, I think that's a, um, Mark, Mark, uh, Mark Twain again said, immigration is the sincerest form of flattery. But I think returning to your country when you're from the emerging world and, and then you have an opportunity to study in the U.S. And, and a lot of people who make it here and figuring out how to ways to stay here, but so many Saudis go back, right? So you have this younger generation of Saudis that just think differently. Uh, you know, and in fact, I think there are shared values with those young, that younger generation of Saudis. Um, right. They are wired, they're connected, um, they are global, uh, uh, and 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 they want the, and they want in their de demand better governance. Um, uh, and so, so I think that we we if if we think of it in those long term, uh, long term, this this generation of Saudis uh, today, um, I think that the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia does have a good future. Um, uh, but if we look at it in the old paradigms, I think then then we're going to still have that friction. I am. Um, uh, there was uh, a number of Democrats on who just recently passed a resolution to pressure President Biden to be more uh, stern with Saudi Arabia about the human rights. It, it, it was to me, it was extremely dated and reactionary. But and I say that apropos to your point, Saudi Arabia looks at itself differently, and and a large part of that is how its youth look to us, look at, consider itself, its aspirations. It sees itself in the world. We've uh, several weeks ago we had Mark Thompson, who's a senior research fellow with uh, King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies, and has done, I think, has done the most in-depth and comprehensive research on socioeconomic situation in Saudi Arabia. Next week I'm doing a plug for the 966, but you know every week is fantastic. Next week, Mark Thompson and his uh, co-author Neil Quilliam is going to join the 966 to talk about their. It's just published this month. Their book, Governance and Domestic Policy Making in Saudi Arabia: Transforming Society, Economics, Politics, and Culture. I say this not only because it's going to be immensely fascinating, but it speaks to your point. Uh, and I've said it a number of times on the show. American policymakers. There are some people in the administration, but American policymakers, as a rule, are are woefully out of step and out of date when it comes to Saudi Arabia and what really matters and the changes that are going on there. And I'm not sure how we can fix it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that we could do is, is, is just have more people go to Saudi Arabia. You know, uh, I think, you know, I used to, you know, I saw this whenever I was in Saudi Arabia and I'd meet people that were there for the first time and they'd say, oh, wow, I didn't realize, you know, that the society, you know, was more robust than I thought, you know, et cetera. And by the way, this is not just true of Saudi Arabia. This is also true of other countries and mm -hmm. country that is not um, uh, does not have the same relationship with the United States. But Iran, you know, I mean, I, what I said about Saudi Arabia, you could also say about Iran. You have a youth that is urbanized and wired and connected and, 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 and aspirate. They have aspirations. And, and interestingly, the Iranian youth are 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 very, very few, you know, very small percentage of them are anti-American. There is this sense that they all want to, you know, experience America and go <laughs> right. to America, et cetera. So you can say this about a lot of places, but but it is, but it still remains true and it still remains vital to the future. But in, in the case of Iran, you have a government that is holding back that youth. In the case of Saudi Arabia, you have a government that is actually uh, unleashing this youth on the world. Uh, and I think that's, that's, a, that's positive. Agreed. Um, Let's 
we've covered so many subjects, Afshin. Um, let's talk about China in the Middle East, because as you've said before, one of the problems with Saudi Arabia, one of the problems with U.S. policy globally is their fixation on China. But China is, in fact, uh, becoming much more influential in the region based on its trade flows and its investment, that sort of thing. But what, what should we be looking at as the West, but in general, in terms of interpreting China in the region, in the Gulf in particular? Sure. Uh, I, it's an important question, Richard, because if you were to, if I were to go back to my time uh, back in when I first went to Saudi Arabia in the early to mid-1990s, uh, there wasn't a significant Chinese presence, right? But now when I travel uh, to the Gulf states and other parts of the Middle East and North Africa, not only do you, you read the numbers in terms of China's trade flows, you know, with the region, but you also see the significant Chinese presence, either Chinese nationals or Chinese, you know, companies. Uh, Huawei for a while was not just providing the telecommunications infrastructure, but they were also hiring Lebanese pop divas to sell Huawei smartphones to, you know, <laughs> Arab middle classes, right? Um, uh, and and so, so you see this all across uh, uh, the region. Uh, and, and in the case of Saudi Arabia, of course, um, China, um, Saudi Arabia is China's number one oil supplier. By the way, Saudi Arabia is also South Korea's number one oil supplier and Japan's number one oil supplier and India's number two India. oil supplier. So it's not as if, you know, there's something nefarious going on there. So, so, so we shouldn't buyer, take it personally. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're an Asian buyer of oil. Chances are you're buying a lot of Saudi oil, you know, uh, <laughs> and, and then, uh, uh, so, so then you, you, but you see that, that there's uncomfortable conversations now taking place because the defining geopolitical issue of our time is the U S China cold war, slash U.S. China, um, uh, um, uh, let's put it this way, the defining geopolitical issue of our time is the U.S. China Cold War, right? Uh, and, and so when you look at that issue, Washington is seeing a lot of things through that prism. Uh, and then they're, they're seeing, uh, looking at the numbers of China's flows with Saudi Arabia, trade flows and, 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 or its investments uh, in Saudi Arabia or in the Emirates or elsewhere, or Israel, frankly, and they're, you know, dialing up the numbers, you know, they're dialing 966 to Saudi Arabia and saying, hey, guys, you know, um, I noticed, you know, 35 to 37 billion dollars, you know, worth of projects, you know, that China's done over the past, you know, 15 years. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the response might be, well, you know, you're in the United States, China's your third largest trade partner, right? So, so the, the, it's important. That's why it's important to take this global perspective and not to look at these relationships just bilaterally because China is, you know, a top three trade partner for just about every country, you know, across Southeast Asia and across South Asia. It's a, it's, it's the, it's the top three trade partner for the United States. Um, it's the world's largest trading nation. So it's going to have a big impact on trade numbers. It's going to have a big impact on, uh, on investment numbers. But when it comes to Belt and Road uh, and China's investments in the region, a lot of the projects that you see that they do in Saudi Arabia or in the Emirates, they, have, they haven't fallen into the foreign direct investment category. They've fallen into the projects category, construction projects. Uh, they're paid to deliver. They deliver, they produce the, the project, and then they get out. I told you, you know, we were speaking before on Afshin how excited I was to talk with you because of, you know, my perceptions of you. But th again, this has just been shot through with your insight, your content, context, and your perspective. This has just really been uh, informative, and I, I want to thank you very much. 
Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Lucien. It's it's great to be uh, on the Nine Six Six show. I mean, you guys are doing a great job with the show, and I, I look forward to watching and listening. Well, so, uh, promise you'll come back. I will. I will. I will. Thank you very much. Thank you. E- eWorld.substack.com. Definitely thank check you. it out. Do yourself the biggest favor you'll do this week. It's awesome. Ashton, thank, thank you, you so much again. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank. You. Take care. That was our conversation with Afshin Malavi from Johns Hopkins SICE. Just a brilliant guy. Great conversation. Richard, thank you as always for opening up your Rolodex for us and all the listeners and followers <laughs> of the 966. That was great. Apart from apart from the extraordinary insight that he provided, and what a great conversation. It was great to catch up with Afshin. He's a good friend and, mm-hmm. and uh, a high-quality individual. And his newsletter rules. Um, it's almost as good as our newsletter, but um, <laughs> you can find that on Substack. It's terrific. And he has a recent piece in there on Putin and global shrapnel, which is fantastic. A must read. Emerging world, emerging markets daily. Definitely. It's really a, a good thing to go th- see every day. It helps us a lot in terms of how, when we aggregate our, our news, our uh, daily Sustig review. Definitely. Shall we get into Yella? Yella. Yella. Yes. <laughs> He's yellow Saudi in a minute. Number one, on Saturday, the Hajj Ministry announced that it, quote, has authorized one million pilgrims, both foreign and domestic, to perform the Hajj this year, unquote. According to the National, pilgrims traveling from overseas are expected to constitute 85% of the total number. In 20 and 2021, Saudi authorities significantly reduced the number of pilgrims allowed in order to combat the spread of coronavirus, a very responsible health thing to do. In 2020, only 1,000 pilgrims were permitted to participate. In 2021, the number was 60,000. In both cases, I think almost almost entirely domestic. So this is great. Uh, getting back to normal, a million pilgrims, very exciting. And 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 anyway, go ahead. That's good. This is good good news. No, that's it is awesome news. And there's a lot of wrinkles here. Um, when we were decided to do this, I sort of looked at uh, the Hajj being canceled over time. The coronavirus pandemic was not the first time. One uh, scholar says it's been canceled about 40 times throughout the history of Islam due to disease, outbreaks, political disagreements, and battles. Obviously, the coronavirus pandemic is the most recent, um, and it's really the only time it's been canceled recently. The other wrinkle of this, and we've talked about it a little bit on the show as well, Richard, is um, the sort of crass financial um, angle of this. and. The Hajj is, you don't want to say it's big business, but with so many people traveling to Saudi Arabia, it generates a lot of inflows of capital for the for the kingdom. It is um, big business. Yeah. And they, I mean, Saudi Arabia spent a lot of attention to trying to make the Hajj experience better, not only the actual mechanics of performing the Hajj, but enticing uh, pilgrims to stay longer. Mm-hmm. And they put safety first. I and mean, we've talked about that as well. It's you know, that was not an easy decision to walk away from what is estimated to be six to eight billion dollars a year in revenue from the Hajj that Saudi Arabia gets. So it's it's a it's a good, good point. And I hearken back to what I always say about Saudi Arabia's management of its if it's if it's natural resources, oil and natural oil in particular, and that they've invested billions and billions of dollars to be able to continue to produce at high levels. Um, this was not just a health decision. It was it was a health decision that overrided, overrode, if you want to be honest, override, uh, you know, every economic bone in someone's body and says, look, we're giving up a, so much money by doing this. 
but it was the right thing to do. And as they've handled with the pandemic, as they've shown in other areas of it, they've, they've done the right thing repeatedly. 70% of visitors uh, for the Hajj each year come from overseas. It's really, a, it's really a fantastic Wikipedia page and internet deep dive because it's the largest annual human migration in the world. It's, it's astounding that they can handle you know, a million people coming over, the, over a very short span of time. I mean, for just out of the gate, the airports need to be able to handle it, the local transportation, housing, food, water, everything is, it's, it is impressive. And it should be remembered, and I, uh, Hajj has gotten up to 2.5 million, the mm-hmm. Hajj itself. This is a, a, a short span of time. But um, there's also the Umrah, which are pilgrims, pilgrimages that you can make year-round to Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia is actually dealing, I think, with something like five to seven million pilgrims every year. Not just the Hajj, but mm-hmm. pilgrims coming year round, and um, and you know they take the custodians of the two holy places. Uh, it's extraordinarily important to Saudi Arabia's um, self-image and what they think is is um, you know that they are responsible for. So they take it very seriously. It's so important, in fact, that they have their own ministry, as you mentioned in your blurb. I mean, there's a minister of Hajj and Umrah for Saudi Arabia, uh-huh. um, and. It is. It's also interesting to see how Mecca and Medina have changed, even just over the last few years. I mean, they've turned into, you know, massive metropolises, but have still kind of honored like the Grand Mosque. It's still very holy, and um, but it, but if you look at photos of it now, I mean, it's a, you know, I guess the Mecca clock tower is the third tallest building in the world. I mean, it's just insane. So just in, just in the interest of journalistic, uh, you know, ethics, there's plenty of people who have criticized Saudi Arabia for overbuilding it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, anytime you have this kind of urban transformation and this kind of construction, people are going to be upset. The things are lost. Things are not, uh, you know, uh, socially or culturally culturally you know, sensitive. So there's, there's criticism about this. Mm-hmm. It has, it is really grown up and it's really blown up and they have grand plans for it. But there's critics for sure. We are all about journalistic integrity on the 966. <laughs> Uh, Yella number two, Citigroup is back, Richard, in Saudi Arabia, per the Wall Street Journal. The third largest U.S. bank has again found favor in the kingdom as one of the foreign lenders helping the kingdom modernize its economy. Quote, they paid their dues, end quote, said a senior Saudi official. They were in the penalty box long enough, and now they're back in the game. I remember when they pulled out. And this is this was they pulled out in two thousand four, and the reason being was that this in the post nine eleven world, uh, their ability to fully uh, respond to uh, accounting demands for who's investing what, where it's going, that sort of they felt like they couldn't through their subsidiary. They had twenty percent in Saudi American bank in Saudi Arabia, and in fact, Citi was the only uh, U.S. bank with a retail banking subsidiary in the kingdom. So they had the, they had. They had made the commitment. They were there, and they pulled out. And like I said, this was no four. And I, you knew at the time this was really going to be resented, and it wasn't going to be something that was forgotten. And it, it was not forgotten because uh, you know, as as with anybody, you know, if you if you if you leave us when we're down, that's when you know that's when we know. Uh, and Citibank, you know, could could you know, justify in any number of ways, but it didn't change the fact that Saudis felt uh, you know abandoned. And and left down in a, in a time of uh, particular crisis. So, so it's great that they're back. It as as uh, as you said in your <laughs> in your in your your blurb, 
took close to 20 years to do it. Prince Awalid bin Talal owns a significant amount of Citigroup as well. Um, so there is a, a longer standing Saudi connection there. Uh, very interesting. I mean, that banks are looking at Saudi Arabia and the, you know, seven to nine percent GDP growth rate this year and salivating at the possibilities there. And so this is just I mean, it's good news for Citigroup. But um, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, and they're making money. City, I mean, w w during the financial crisis in 2016, they they loaned uh, a significant amount to Saudi. They, I guess, one of the parts of this article that you we reference on this is from 2017 to 2021. J.P. Morgan made the most investment banking revenue in the kingdom at 143 million, closely followed by HSBC and then City at 134 million. So they're making money. Um, they don't have a. They don't have a. Uh, retail banking license yet, uh, full banking license yet, but they'll, they'll get back in. And But boy, it took a while. And, and as you say, it's a market that, you know, if you're, if you're a bank of that size, you really need to be in. This article will be in the comments for the YouTube section. It'll also be wherever you're listening to this podcast. It's a Wall Street Journal article. I just wanted to say that Stephen Kalin, um, who I think you've met and know, and, and Rory jo Jones and she doesn't have a byline here, but some are said that three Wall Street Journal rep reporters on Saudi Arabia are fantastic, you know, among the best in, in the business. And they're usually first with big stories. Just got to give them a shout out because their reporting is wonderful. I, yes, it's a great resource for us. We're trying to look for good for reporting and good commentary on Saudi Arabia always. Always. Number three, according to a report in The Telegraph, two-time master champ, uh, Masters champ Bubba Watson, along with European Ryder Cup stars Lee Westwood and Ian Poulter, as well as five-time tour winner Kevin Na, are among those expected to join the 225 million rival uh, golf league. Uh, the final details are still being confirmed, according to Live Golf, per the report, but the plan is to announce some of the players who are planning to join in the weeks ahead. We have made it 35 episodes, and I'm I'm pretty sure that the word golf has appeared in every single one of the episodes, if not every single one, very close. Um, what I think is really cool about this is that, first of all, they just pushed ahead with the plan. They didn't let the Phil Mickelson comments and the fallout from that and the potential loss. There was nothing that was revealed in this Telegraph article about the potential loss of other stars because of Phil Mickelson's comments. We may never know the truth there. But what I think is really great about this is they're pushing ahead. They're having these massive purses. And I think uh, Greg Norman said in an interview, which made up for this article, essentially, look, we're going to put the money out there. We've got some stars. We'll have more coming in. But if you're ranked something like 350th in the world and you see a, you know, a live golf tour event and the purse is $4 million, $6 million, you have a chance to change your life. I mean, you you're, you may never make that much money on the PGA Tour ever, but if you play really good golf for a weekend, you can beat some of these, you know, famous names in the game. Bubba Watson has two green jackets. You can enter a tournament like this and, and win and change your life and, you know, in a way become a, a star. So they just didn't get deterred and they're going forward with it. And it's I think it's good. We've talked and we have talked about this a lot, and I agree. It's uh, it's it needs to get started. Just stop the talking, and all the talking really did did it a disservice. Mm -hmm. um, Great, uh, you know, get it started. See if it see if it floats. You know, it, it. I think it has some good ideas. I think it, you know, apart from the money and the uh, the, the the large scale on the, in terms of purses and the reduced fields, 
I think some of the competition things, you know, 50, uh, you know, shotgun starts, teams, um, 54 hole uh, tournament. I think these are all things that might make it watchable, but it doesn't matter. We have to get it out there and see if it is watchable. And if it does succeed, then you start having a, a different conversation in three, four years. It's like a lot of startups spend so much time on hype and trying to get the idea to be accepted by cons- customers before they even put a product out there. And in reality, most successful startups get the minimum viable product out there, like push it out the door, let the public see it, feel it, you know, touch it, taste it, whatever, and then get feedback from them, adjust and grow that way because you'll have real fans, real following. And and I think that's what is, like you just mentioned, I mean, maybe they did talk a little bit too much. There was a lot of hype. I think part of that was to get some of these big names um, in hopes of maybe doing that. But either way, this thing's pushing off the off the edge and we'll see. Um, I don't know, Richard, if, if we are out allowed to play in these and then <laughs> if we could still play in the other PGA Tour events we're invited to, we may have to run that by the commissioner of, of the PGA, uh, but uh, we'll see. I have a meeting with Jay Monahan, head of PGA next week, because he's really concerned I might opt out. So. <laughs> well, make them really sell you, you know, make them put exactly. out the, you know. All the nice, uh, all the nice stuff he brings to the office, so that you, you know, feel like get get wined and dined a little bit here. <laughs> on the tour, on this uh, Saudi Super League, uh, the uh, it's an eight event tour. It's currently set off to tee off in two months at the Centurion Club in St Albans, outside London. They have multiple U.S. stops as well, including one at Trump Bedminster in New Jersey. Uh, you know, I think that's unfortunate, but that's just me, only because he's a divisive figure in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it doesn't matter. The point is to get started. And uh, as you say, I think you're right. They lost control of the narrative, so all the better. Let's get it done. Let's get it out there. Let's get the product out there. And and to to you know, as um, as uh, Greg Norman said, part of, I think the quote you were looking at, you know, he's basically he says, quote, quite honestly, it doesn't matter who plays. We're going to put the event on. Unquote. There you go. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, I agree. The, the the Trump decision to have it at a Trump court, to have one of these events at a Trump course is not a great idea just because it interjects politics into this. But so be it. I hear yeah. that course is great. So um, <laughs> yeah, for them. Yeah, exactly. When you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and Richard, right. as you know, some of our, our more popular videos on YouTube and one we get many, many comments on and emails from are our comments on Saudi golf. And we're going to stick with it because uh, it's interesting to us. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, yellow number four, an average of 54% of survey respondents from Saudi Arabia and the, and the UAE said they believe cryptocurrency should be used as currency. Still a significant proportion of the respective countries' respondents believe certain obstacles are stopping crypto from going mainstream. This is according to a report in Bitcoin.com. Very, very interesting. Cryptocurrency is sort of at an inflection point right now. Will be interesting to see how it takes off in Saudi Arabia and the UAE and the other Gulf nations. I wasn't sure how to take this report other than interesting. In terms of uh, point of reference, I thought it was interesting that this 54% of respondents is is nine percentage points higher than the global average of 40%, 45%. And in fact, in the US, it's 36%, Germany, 31%, uh, the UK, 32%. I guess the point being is, is uh, this is what happens when you have a young, a young society with a 
with a, a surfeit of smartphones. I mean, these people, the, the, these consumers, this demographic in Saudi Arabia and the UAE are really adept uh, on digital, uh, digital, digital devices and digital options. It's especially remarkable when you think about the, the fact that the digital payment transactions in the kingdom jumped by 75% in 2020. And that with cash withdrawals from ATMs and other payments uh, fell 30% in that same year. So essentially, this transition is happening at lightning speed. See, this is why it's so good to do the 966 with you, Richard, because you always uh, bring a lot more depth to this. That is fascinating about the digital payments situation in Saudi Arabia, and that's a great point. I mean, and they have such a young population. It does seem like 54% might even be a little bit lower than what I would expect, but that's fascinating. You know, we should launch the 966 coin. In fact, we should do an ICO today. Um, mm -hmm. But doesn't it have to be named after a dog or something? I mean, isn't it better if we do that? I, I, I saw that the Shiba Inu Bitcoin was now one of the four benchmarks. It's just insane. Uh, it's just insane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clearly behind the curve on this. Um, do, what is your dog's name again? I'm blanking <laughs> on it right now. Bear. Bear coin. That's right. Bear, Bear coin. coin. <laughs> a 966 product. Yeah, there you go. Um, I don't think any of my cats want want in on it, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, so they're going to miss out. <laughs> cat, cats are an unreliable investment investment <laughs> in all cases. So, um, number five, uh, according to a report in Bloomberg, Uber's woes continue in Saudi Arabia. Wait times for cars have soared since the government enforced a rule last year that all drivers must be Saudis. While that's part of a broad push to create jobs for citizens, it ruled out the millions of foreign migrants in the country. Richard, we work. We took Uber in Saudi Arabia when it first launched there. I mean, like really, really early on. And it was very interesting because it had a very unregulated feel to it, um, <laughs> to put it very nicely. Um, well, go go ahead, ahead, please. No, no, no. no. It was speaking to your point, one of the regulations that Uber's struggling with is that the government has required that there are no, no, no cars, cars, cars can be no older than five years. That was not the case when we were taking Ubers. <laughs> I think that was the case. That was, I think it was, um, you know, in that situation was cars were, were not required to have seatbelts was the, was a reigning, you know, rule of uh, thumb for Uber when we were taking it, or for, yep. when we first took it. I would say maybe half the rides we took in Saudi had no seatbelts in the back, which was very concerning when the driver was holding up a phone, driving with one hand, and the phone, like I guess, was on the, it was either on a, a phone call, but um, you know, just downtown in Riyadh, it can get a little hairy when traffic is really bad, and that was just a very, um, you know, very interesting thing. But what, what I like about this story, what I think is interesting about the story, you, you have a lot of labor stuff wrapped up in this, and. It's good that Saudi Arabia is trying to get their citizens to to take these jobs. We did talk a little bit earlier about an Uber success story for Saudi women. Um, the four year impact of the Wasool program, you know, getting Saudi women to work without charging them the full fare really worked out, um, which is one of the biggest uh, public private partnerships that Uber has ever done. Um, and last year, Uber revealed that it revealed 50% year-on-year increase in female drivers in Saudi Arabia working for Uber, which is really cool. I mean, you know, women just recently, I mean, not recently, but, you know, 2017, 2018, got the right to drive in general. And so to see that is very cool. Um, I should also add as well that um, Saudi women can 
uh, request that their passengers not be male, um, I believe, which is also interesting. So very, very cool. It must be interesting to be an Uber official in Saudi Arabia. Well, and we talked about it last week, uh, an episode, I believe one of the yellows was on Nitakat and the Saudization of electronics stores. Mm-hmm. And they've been a whole raft of, of sectors that, that the Saudis have moved to, to reform regulations and, and require Saudization. And we talked about it then. It's a case of, you know, uh, one step back to achieve two steps up. Mm-hmm. It's if you you know if you're gonna if you're gonna require the Saudis be uh, employed in certain sectors and certain jobs, you're gonna have to understand that you're gonna be hiring uh, employees that are a little more expensive and less experienced. It's interesting that they are not doing a solution that involves some sort of surge situation where if you're not a, a citizen, you can work for Uber, but only in the event that there's an increase in demand. Um, that is an interesting point, but again, for them, they're they're sticking to a principle. We we have to create jobs for our our native population. Mm-hmm. This is this is uh, you know priority number one. And so when you look around the economies, and 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 it's you know we have this is a good news because we have Saudis driving. You didn't have this before. I yep. mean, and plenty of Saudis who are looking to drive Ubers. Uh, clearly, there's a driver shortage, but and it's also been an a, uh, an access to employment for women. So, it's it's good and bad. It's not it's never an unalloyed good, mm-hmm. uh, but clearly the the end result they're hoping for will will serve their diversification and 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 job creation plans. If there was ever a market that was ready for disruption, it was Saudi Arabia and especially Riyadh. Richard, our trips there before Uber were very, very uh, hairy and really, I mean, trying to get around Riyadh. They're building a massive new metro, which will transform the capital. But trying to get around Riyadh before Uber was not easy. Um, and driving in Saudi Arabia is not for the faint of heart. It's gotten a lot better, as I understand it. But um, it's a small city that got big. And mm-hmm. you know, it was always designed around a car, and it's just uh, yeah, they're they're trying to rethink everything in terms of their urban design. But it's hard when you have a legacy, a concrete legacy, pun intended, uh, of that size and enormity. Um, I will say that we did take some very nice Ubers. Um, I don't want to totally besmirch all Ubers, but we did have some very nice Uber rides there, um, <laughs> which were great, in in some cars that may be a little too nice for Uber here in the United States. Yeah, seriously. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Um, well, Richard, we've started off serious with uh, regional political and foreign policy stuff, uh, and then we wound our way into cryptocurrency and golf, and here we are back, yellow number six. Saudi Arabia's Industrial Production Index, also known as the IPI, grew by 22.3% in February compared to the same month of 2021. This was the highest year-on-year growth rate during the last three years. The General Authority for Statistics added according to Arab News, that IPI's positive growth for the 10th month in a row is attributed to higher production in the three subsectors, mining and quarrying, manufacturing and electricity and gas supply. You know, I don't have much to say on this other than it's more good news. And I've referenced Fahad Amalki, who was, uh, you know, a, a, a Riyadh lawyer, a very capable and smart uh, individual who was a special guest with us, and he said, this was back in September, I think, maybe a September or about, he said 2022 is going to be a good year because a lot of the stuff, the groundwork that's been laid uh, is going to start to see come to fruition. 
And uh, so this is 10 months in a row. And this started, you know, this turned positive, that IPI index turned positive in May, has stayed positive in May 2021. I just feel like this is what happens. And you keep plugging, obviously, you know, commodity super cycle helps, but good, good, good fiscal decisions, good investment decisions, or at least productive, positive investments. And none of them are, are completely good. But uh, I, I really feel they're they're reaping uh, what they've sown right now in terms of trying to lay the groundwork for for non-oil uh, and industrial growth. We talked last week about the Hanagia mining uh, opportunity in which eight companies well, found themselves well on the final um, list. Uh, mining and quarrying is on this, but um, that contract has not been awarded yet, so that actually will bump that up as well. Yeah, a red-hot Saudi economy right now, um, and good on them. Fahad al-Maliki was just ter- a terrific guest. I hope he joins us again. Um, I think that does it. Richard, let's get back to work. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, um, this is our job apart from our real job. How, 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 how do we get ourselves into this? This is, a, as, as Afshin mentioned, this is a, doing a podcast is a huge lift. It's a huge lift, but it's worth it because we would be having these conversations and calls anyway. We're just turning true. on the recorder and uh, adding a little B-roll. So that's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, this is fun. Um, we'll see everybody next week. Uh, again, check all the segments out on YouTube if you don't want to go whole hog on the on the program. Um, and just if you can follow us, uh, especially on Apple uh, Podcasts, really helps us a lot. Um, just that's. You don't have to buy anything from us, but just that's how we sort of grow here. And we are seeing our numbers go up every week. It's so cool. So It is impressive. There's a buzz. There's a 966 buzz. There's a buzz. Richard, thank you very much. See you next week. Thank you, Lucian. Excellent episode.